This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Camilla Durval is a photographer, a gardener, a mental health and rewilding habitat gardening advocate based on the Danish island of Eero. Her home farm, shared with her husband and children, is known as Siris Mina, meaning in memory of Sigrid, the gardener who first established a garden on this coastal bluff spot before Camilla's mother and father-in-law took on its care prior to Camilla and her family partnering with the land. Camilla joins us today from her home and garden to share more about her journey. Welcome, Camilla. Thank you so much for having me. So I gave a little bit of an introduction about who you are and where you are and what you do, Camilla, but maybe you could uh, give a more descriptive um, distillation of your life there on your farm and what your relationships to plants is right now, personally and professionally, maybe. Yeah, sure. Well, right now, as usually happens in the busy summer on a personal level, um, the garden is where I go to get some relief, uh, I guess. Um, Summers have always been busy for me. I just happen to choose uh, work lives where the summer is the the busiest point of the year. And... um, and the garden is where I go to find myself every time I, I, yeah, can't find myself in the busyness of everything, um, and just being amongst the plants and, of course, the wildlife that depends on the plants as well. Just being there and sort of losing track of time, really, I guess, is is the biggest point. It's it's amazing, and. Um, on a professional or a business uh, level, of course, the garden and the plants and the animals and everything is or are the main subject of my photography on a daily basis. Uh, several times a day, I will be out there and um, and photographing what's going on uh, throughout the seasons. And uh, then I actually also sell quite a few cut flowers to a local wedding planner throughout the summer. Um, so there's that little added aspect of it. And describe your farm, starting with the the name of it and what it looks like right now. We can get into the history of it a little more when we get into the deeper part of the conversation, but maybe give people a sense of how big it is and, and what it looks like and um, and it's certainly its name. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's called Siris Mine, and that was a name my husband and I gave it. It didn't have a name uh, until we moved here. Um, it's very, very close to our nearest town. Um, it's just about 300 meters away from from the edge of town. But when you get out here, it feels like you're in the countryside completely. Um and the the driveway is sort of what I feel is the transition area of going from a world out there and coming in here somehow. Like um, 
we we sort of switched the house um so that now the the courtyard is sort of enclosed and we're we're cut off from the road far more it was very important to me to create a space where it really felt like a sanctuary a private healing place yeah a place of in its own um away from from the rest of the the busy world um and when you come in it's a big white house um and there's a nice view of the bay below we're just a few hundred meters from from the sea here um which is practically everywhere on the island but we live in a really nice spot here um and the garden is sort of wrapping around the house now. Uh, it used to be just a lawn and a field with horses and goats and stuff, but now it's it's full of trees and shrubs and lots of weeds as well, <laughs> uh, which I welcome. They're very welcome here, most of them anyway. And it's just, I feel it myself definitely when I enter our home. Um, but I also hear it again and again from family and friends and strangers who who visit here that it feels like a separate place, a separate world, which I'm very happy about. Um, and how many total acres or whatever unit of measurement you might use do you have? And what is your growing season like when do you when are you past frost and when will the growing season end this fall with the first frost good question actually well in in terms of the the size of the place um we have roughly uh, 15 hectares here uh, i'm not quite sure what that is in in acres but it's it's 50 15 hectares um, so it's quite big, but not all of the land is connected to the house. So we have some fields that are a bit further away. Um, but we're hoping someday to be able to to swap those for fields that are adjacent to to the land we, we have so that we can create a sort of coherent and uh, completely integrated place, I guess. Um, and in terms of the seasons, it's, I hardly know how to describe it anymore because, uh, when my daughter was born, uh, we had three months of minus 15 degrees and two meters of snow every winter. Mm. And now last winter we didn't have, I think we had one morning of frost and that was in October. And then we didn't have any frost for real for the rest of the winter at all mm. uh, so I'm actually just as curious as everyone else to see what's gonna happen uh, this season because basically you can grow stuff all year round if it's a winter like it was last winter but of course the it's still wet and cloggy and cold so uh, so you can't it's not like a California uh, winter yeah um, but it, it's anyone's guess at the moment, right. um, when the cutoff date for different plants is, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah it is, uh, you know, I, I think you would agree that gardening is 
a constant education and experiment, but um, it is even less predictable than it's ever been in, in my lifetime as well. So I think it's about 37 acres, uh, that many hectares. How much is the cultivated garden right around the house, Camilla? That would be about half a hectare. Okay. And you have chickens and you have vegetables and you've just recently started a big berry patch this growing season and you have the weeds, as you say, but it's it's definitely a garden to not only provide beauty, but to provide sustenance, um, physical food and supplies for your and your household. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. But that's kind of come later, actually. I have to say the garden for me started as a visual thing, ah. a visual stimulation. And the growing of the food, even though it's something I've always been used to, like my parents had a big vegetable garden and my grandfather had a, had a big vegetable garden. So I, I've always had memories and experiences of homegrown food. But But growing my own food was never part of the equation when I started gardening, actually. It was only plants and the visual. Oh, good. Okay, well, we will get into that. There's already a couple of intriguing threads to follow up on. But before we go there, I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody, which is take us back a little bit to where you were born and raised and who the influential people and places and plants were that grew you into a woman who would choose this life in in this time of your life? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I grew up in a small, very boring, not cozy house, but in the countryside, like way out, as far away from a town as you can get in Denmark, which is a very small country. Um so there was nothing around but fields, uh, but it were they were cultivated fields. So it's not like we had any interesting nature around except for a small forest just on the other side of the street. Um, but it was a very free childhood, though. Um, I mean, we were free to roam uh, the fields because there were no traffic. There were no uh, apparent dangers anywhere near. Uh, and definitely I knew uh, growing up quite quickly that I wanted that feeling for my own children someday. Uh, not necessarily the surroundings because they were not pretty at all, but but definitely that feeling of being in those open spaces uh, I wanted for them. Um, and we've moved quite a few times uh, when I was a child, so I don't have... Um, a place that I think of as home um, because we moved at, at such distinct um, points uh, during my upbringing that I sort of have this uh, childhood home, then I have a big um, child home, and then I have a, the teenage home. And, and, um, and I really wanted that for my children as well, that feeling of this is home. This is where we come back to. This is where they bring their children to for holidays and weekends. And, and they know they belong here. Yeah. Um, 
that's that's really important to me and luckily it was for my husband too but then at a certain point how old was i 13 um when we moved to sort of the last home where we lived as a family my my parents uh, split up um when we moved away from that home uh, so my last uh, family home was a beautiful old farm um on Fyn which is a a much bigger island just north of here uh, where the island where we live now and um and i think subconsciously i i immediately when i when i came to Sirius Mini for the first time i immediately saw that here was the potential to recreate that farmhouse where i lived with my parents because it was truly idyllic like hills it had its own woodland it it was just a beautiful house big garden lots of flowers big vegetable patch and it was just it was the dream yeah um but it didn't work out for my parents so i think subconsciously i've been trying to sort of recreate that here and see if i could make it work uh, with my family with my husband uh, in this place instead um so so that that farm is definitely um a big psychological um factor in my garden journey but in terms of the style of gardening that i prefer now i think my grandfather and his garden um where i spent a lot of weekends and holidays especially summer holidays as a child is is my biggest source of inspiration it's um it was a truly magical place and he lived uh, on the coast as well and he made uh, lots of little uh, paths for me around uh, the garden where he sort of cut a shrub so that i could just and it was just me it wasn't for grown-ups because they couldn't have gone through so it was just <laughs> me as a kid to sort of sneak past here and there and i remember he had a huge uh, bamboo area and then at some point he sort of cut a hole and then cut away the whole middle section so i had like a little cave in there and it was completely dark and just all these bamboo sticks going up all around me and again it was only me who could get in there um so he he really went out of his way to to create these spaces for me which was strange because when my father talks about him growing up in that same place um the garden was the the thing that took my grandfather away from him so he never had time for his kids because he was always gardening and they weren't allowed to walk here or do this and his garden was like his first child and then my my father and his brothers were were second place um so so i had a completely different experience than than he did and uh, and my grandfather always let like puppies and uh, digitalis and everything was just allowed to sort of um grow where they wanted so i always um remember the puppies sort of in the gravel in his driveway they were allowed to stay there and and i think that little spot those puppies in the gravel is kind of um, essential for how I garden now um, with what I leave behind instead of just weeding away. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Camilla Jurvel is a gardener and well-known Danish photographer. Throughout her life, she has turned to the garden and the natural world as anchor in moments of both physical and psychological distress and even breakdown. We'll be right back for more of her story. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. In this exact season of life here from my garden in Northern California, what with COVID-19, environmental and economic distress, fire season, and the presidential political season, with the many socially unjust fault lines of the current American system reaching back, oh, 400 years, and now the loss of the honorable, the notorious, the courageous, and the human, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm clinging to the autumnal equinox of earlier this week like a life raft, to its profoundly grounding reminder that change is the only constant. There is both cliché and comfort, hope even, in that. I was moved by a post that someone sent me recently by direct message in honor and mourning for RBG, reminding us that she was not our last hope. We, we are our last hope. We are powerful agents of change in how we live our lives, how we cultivate the beauty and diversity and regenerative magic of our places, how we appreciate and care for life around us. It is from these values we must act and vote with every action taken, every inch of life and land cared for, every dollar spent or donated to causes and work we believe in, every vote we cast in all these ways. If you're a U.S. citizen, don't squander these rights. Have a plan. Register to vote. And make sure your vote is cast, and received, and heard, and makes a difference on November 3rd. We're back now to our conversation with Danish photographer and gardener, Camilla Jurvel. As we come back, Camilla shares her early adulthood and career years prior to making her home and garden at Sigrasmina. Of all the things that have happened in my life, the, <clears throat> the creative part um, has felt the most organic somehow. Um, I've always been a creative child. Like I was always drawing and painting and creating stuff. And uh, at a very young age, it was clear that I had uh, a talent for it as well. It wasn't like uh, other kids doodling. There was definitely like an intention and a talent behind all my my hours uh, spent there. And um, my dad had an old Pentax camera, like a film camera back then, of course. Um, and one day I just, I think I must have been around 14. Uh, I bought a film at a local um, shop and put it in. It was a black and white film. And I went out and I took some photos with his camera of some snails sort of 
crawling on a leaf, as far as I remember, and I took a close-up of my brother's eye, um, and I still have those photos somewhere. Um, <laughs> but that was kind of my first interaction with a camera. And um, it just sort of slowly evolved so that I found the, even though I still made some pocket money during high school and stuff, um, drawing portraits of people, I found the sort of instant gratification of clicking the button versus uh, slaving over um, a piece of paper for several days sometimes um, to be really, really satisfying. And, um, and, and I've tried many times since then to kind of return to the paper and the drawing and the pencils and the colors and everything. But but somehow I haven't found my way back to it yet. So photography is definitely, at least for now, it's my optimal way of expressing myself, uh, which is also why this whole conversation is a bit unnerving to me because words are not my favorite way to to say who I am and what I see and what I do, actually. it's It's definitely... The images. I, I would prefer if I never had to ever write a single word on Instagram again and I could just post a photo <laughs> after the other every day. That would be fantastic to me. Um, I really hate writing too. But um, but weirdly enough, a lot of people comment that they love my writing. So I, I, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. It must be, it's a painful process for sure. But if the end result is good, that's okay. But But photos are definitely um my my natural way to express myself now yeah and you eventually turn this love of photography into a livelihood walk us through that part of your journey yes um when it was the same year as my daughter was born so i wasn't very clever um about <laughs> my my timing um but at that point, I had finished my university degree in English. After five years, I was done. And I took a job as an English teacher at um, the only sort of high school-like um, education place here on the island. And um, then uh, I was still working some weekends at a local hotel, um, the same one that I've been working at from the beginning, but only now just as a sort of um, now and then kind of thing. And a couple, an, a German guy and an Indian girl came into the hotel and were asking for a wedding photographer because they were getting married at the courthouse uh, the next day. And I knew at that point already there are no photographers on the island. Um, and I had just sort of been having fun with my camera, taking photos of uh, frosty raindrops and the sea. And it was just, yeah, not not like with intention. And then they came and I said, well, I'm not a professional photographer, but uh, I, I do have a camera and I'd be happy to take a few photos of you tomorrow. And, um, and they agreed. Um, weirdly enough, I have no idea why they trusted me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the following summer, uh, 
my husband's best friend was getting married. Uh, and at, that, at this point, I was still shooting film, by the way. Um, and I said, again, well, I'm not a professional photographer, but if you if you want me to, I'd be happy to take photos. And actually, at that point, it became very clear to me that I prefer being the observer more than I prefer being part of the celebration um, because it gave me a fantastic excuse to just sort of take myself out of everything that was going on and put me up in a corner up against a wall somewhere and just have an excuse to not talk to anybody but just be there and observe and capture um and and i still i would still always prefer to do that i'm not a social um person at all um i would definitely prefer to to always just be quiet but um but it became very clear at that point. Um, and then uh, I read an article in a not a local magazine, but a national magazine, but about a local wedding planner, the one that I'm now selling um, my cut flowers to. Um, and she had just started her uh, wedding planning business because there were a lot of international couples, often from two different countries that were traveling to Denmark to get married because the paperwork here is different from uh, the rest of Europe and the world, actually. Um, so it's easier to get married if you are from two different countries here. Um, and she had opened her business to to serve those couples who came from all over the world. And um, I just sort of, I can't remember if I called her, I just sent her an email and said, hey, I know there are no wedding photographers here. I'm not super great, but I have photographed two weddings. Would you like to meet and maybe talk about working together? And she said, yes, she would love that. And um, knowing her, that's 12 years ago now. And um, knowing her and working with her has been one of the greatest gifts of my existence. Actually, I'm getting a bit teary-eyed now because she's really she believes in me far more than I have ever believed in myself. And, um, and even when then I gave birth to, to my daughter or our daughter um, that same year, and she just stuck by me through everything. And um, I think she was the first one that I sort of really saw who loved me um, despite my strange personality <laughs> um and uh and we've had a fantastic collaboration for 10 years before i then decided to retire from wedding photography after i'd traveled the world and done all the things that i thought was the ultimate dream as a destination mm. wedding photographer it just turned out it definitely wasn't my dream um but i did it anyway and um and then I said, enough is enough. It's time for something new. Uh, Ten years in, I had the best uh, couples as clients that you could ever wish for. I mean, truly, truly amazing, creative, generous people who paid big bucks to have me photograph their wedding day and who knew about my uh, mental health issues and still found me um, interesting and and relatable and 
in the end, I couldn't even muster genuine excitement for people who were that great. I thought now is the time to to do something else. Because if you can't love it when you're working with the best people ever, then then it's not what you're supposed to do anymore. Yeah, so my, my parents split up and then the trauma sort of started because my mother um, was became very ill um, and was later, a few years later, diagnosed um, with schizophrenia. So, like, I have to say the... The years from around 16 to, yeah, probably around 26 when I had, um, when we had our first child, is a bit of a blur, really. Um, I I think I was just trying to survive uh, during those years. Um, And eventually I I just had enough of being um, the parent. And I said, uh, after I finished high school, now I'm going to move to Eru, the island where we live now, and I'm going to be a waitress for a year because I just needed to physically remove myself from the situation. And within, I think, a few days, uh, I met uh, the man who's now my husband. Uh, I, actually, I met him um, in the bar where I was working. Uh, and I think when he leaned over the bar that first time and ordered a beer, I I saw in his eyes the the home and the safety and the security and the stability, very much so the stability that I was deeply and desperately craving at that point where things had just been nothing but chaos. Um, because I think the world is always chaotic, but if you have that certainty that the people very that are the very closest to you and that home that we talked about before if that is stable and reliable and loving and nurturing then it's far easier to go out into the chaos that is the rest of the world and knowing you have that um mm. behind you um but but when when the thing that is supposed to be stable and loving and nurturing becomes your worst enemy basically and and is actively and um, subconsciously trying to destroy you then things just kind of fall apart so I really needed him um, at that moment and then he (laughs) sort of appeared I guess Well, that's one of the best finds in a bar that I've ever heard. So that's a good story. What compelled you to say, I'm going to move to this island? Like, did you know much about it? Was there someone there you knew? Did, like, what what pulled you in the direction of that land? Well, at that point, um, I lived mostly with my father, who who lived on a a small island very close by, but with uh, a bridge attaching it to the mainland. So we kind of lived uh, just as much on the mainland as, as everyone else. But we'd spent quite a few summers um, sailing uh, around this area. And actually, one of the strangest uh, twists of my journey, I guess, is that the the beach that we now have that belongs to the farm here, 
I used to dive there as a teenager from my father's boat, just like just 10 meters from the land I now sit on and look out over the, the sea. Uh, and we've spent so many summers there throwing out the, the anchor and spending the night there because it's such a nice little little bay. And um, and and then I'm, I would have looked up here, of course, not knowing that... <laughs> That someday I would I would live in that house, and that the man I was gonna live with there was walking around up here tending um, <laughs> his father and <laughs> going to school, yeah. and it's just it's so weird. But uh, wow, that's great. The universe is a is um, a benevolent uh, force in in many instances. It's nice when we are able to see that part of the force. So you you meet him at the bar, you see this potential in his eyes at some sort of cellular level in your being. Take us from there and um, and your journey, because we have a couple more twists in the journey, I think. My husband was a sailor at that point, so I think we, we met and became friends because I was definitely not like... Um, consciously looking for a boyfriend at that point I just wanted to be free and be young and be myself um so we just became friends and I it's not like a um anyone asked to be boyfriend or girlfriend or anything it just slowly evolved and I think we were already being boyfriend and girlfriend before either of us sort of discovered that we were um and then he he took me home. His parents lived at the farm uh, at that point, and he took me home um, to meet them. And at breakfast the next morning, the first thing his dad said to me was, "Well, you know, uh, Bjana is going to take over this place someday." Um, so from the very beginning, I knew that um, if I wanted to be with him, um, this was the place I was going to spend. Uh, the most um, of my life uh, as an adult and um, at that point it felt um, like a relief but since then many times it has felt um, very restraining somehow um, that I didn't because at that point, like I said before, I was so desperately seeking a stable home, a stable family, something to hold on to but later, once I'd sort of calmed down and found the strength within me again, I think I just needed to be free <laughs> again. And at that point, I started lamenting the fact that I'd never actually had a, well, a, a real choice. At least that's how it went in my head. Um, I didn't have a real choice as to whether this was going to be my home or not. It was sort of a forced deal which of course it wasn't. I mean, always, you always have a choice. You are how old at this point? I'm only 19, actually. Where are you in your career tra trajectory at this point? Uh, at this point, I'm, I had just begun a year-long uh, job at this um, hotel uh, on the island where I was working as a waitress. Um, and at that point, my plan was definitely, I was going to study English at university. I was going to go to Brussels and work as a translator there. <laughs> and I was going to have a fancy apartment. And like, it didn't make sense at all 
in relation to the kind of person I am and and the kind of environment I actually thrive in. Um, but I think at that point I was just ready to disregard all of that completely because I thought, as most young people do, I think that you can just entirely um, make up the world as you want it to be. So, um, so I had some very different plans than than where I've sort of ended up today, you could say. Um, and then I was going to start university uh, the year after. Uh, and when I did that, I chose the um, traditional uh, English education with literature and history and and that stuff instead of the, the business um, aspect of it. So, so I kind of, I settled into a dream that was more home related than than travel and adventure and freedom and new all the time. Right. And so you go off to university and do do you actually go off to university or do you do university closer to your physical home on the island? No, at that point we we moved together off the island. Uh, my husband was finishing his education with the sailing bit and um and one evening i think a few months before i was supposed to leave the island he um he got pretty drunk actually i hope he's going to forgive me for saying <laughs> this but, but he got pretty drunk and he just sort of half asleep he looked at me i remember and he said please take me away from here and i did i said okay Let's move to Svendborg. Let's move together. That was that's the nearest um, town on the mainland, uh, and we did. We found an apartment there uh, the day he finished his uh, studies, and then I started university, and we lived in that apartment for two years, I think, three years, something like that. But then, eventually, the island started calling him again, I think, and he kept escaping over here every chance he get. Um, he got to um, to revisit his childhood friends, and I think for most people who grow up in such a small community that is like physically isolated from the rest of the world, because you have to take a ferry to get here, and it that's an hour and fifteen minutes each way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And either you hate it, like the plague, and want to leave and never, ever come back, or you will always feel this drawing um, back towards this place. And I think he definitely, he feels that there's no way he can be happy anywhere else. And and I, I kind of had to, to decide at that point uh, whether I could be okay with that and be with him or if we had to split up and um and i chose to yeah move here with him uh, his father had a heart attack and his parents decided it was time to leave this big place and find a smaller house so we gave up the apartment and prepared to move here but then his father got better and sort of had second thoughts because it is a really nice place so i don't blame him actually and then he sort of retracted the offer uh, and we ended up living in a few crappy apartments here on the island for almost four years before I got pregnant. And then we said, okay, 
we both want our children to grow up here, like specifically here. And if they're not ready to move, we're going to find a different farm because that's that's the life we want for our children. And we we told them that. And then he he sort of came around and said, fine. But it, it was a bit, um, there was quite a lot of frustration uh, going on in that year, both on our side, because obviously we wanted to get our life started. We had sort of put everything on hold for four years, uh, waiting for them to to be ready to give up this place. And I also think my father-in-law, especially because my mother-in-law doesn't have a real sort of relationship to to this place. It's definitely his um, his place. So so he sort of felt that we were pushing him out. Um, and it, yeah, there were a lot of hurdles to to overcome within the family that year, but eventually it worked out, and they're very happy in the in the home they have now. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Camilla Jurvel is a gardener and well-known Danish photographer. If you are a follow of hers on social media, you might be familiar with her evocative garden place and landscape images that are both beautiful and complex in their layers. We'll be right back for more of her garden journey story. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, I take real and regular comfort in the many metaphoric truths that the garden and plants in general offer us the small but mighty power of seeds, the importance of rooting and interconnecting with the neighboring lives all around us, the truth of all of our interdependence and the benefit of diversity in all, the idea of rest and digest in the coming dormancy of fall and winter here in the Northern Hemisphere and of budding, sprouting, and blooming enthusiastically about to take place in the Southern Hemisphere. I recently reread this poem by May Sarton, whose Journal of Solitude ranks among my favorite books. It seems so fitting in this moment and in this conversation with Camilla, as even in the heat and drought here, our trees are turning their fall colors and dropping their exuberantly built-up foliage biomass to be turned under to feed the masses of insects, microbes, and soil for the future season to continue to be nourished by. Here is the poem by May Sarton. Quote, Keep busy with survival. Imitate the trees. Learn to lose in order to recover. And remember, nothing stays the same for long. Not even pain. Sit it out. Let it all pass. Let it go. End quote. And I would add, once you let it go, keep growing from there.
We're back now to our conversation with photographer and gardener Camilla Yerville. Earlier in the conversation, Camilla shared how as a teen, she experienced her mother's loss of mental health and function, and subsequently Camilla began a lifelong search for a centering place or home in the world. After marrying and starting a family, Camilla's career as a photographer took off, and there followed a dizzying decade of world travel and global recognition, which, while gratifying, also took its toll, resulting in Camilla's own mental and physical exhaustion and ultimately a long period of depression. As we come back, Camilla shares more about the restorative role of the land and garden at Sigres Mina. On the website, you say, I believe that creating a garden and tending to it on a daily basis is the best way to transform and maintain our health, both physically and mentally. Being in charge of a piece of land, even on a tiny scale, provides a sense of purpose and a little bit of influence in a time when it often feels like the natural world is crumbling around us. Yeah. Talk about the mental health journey that you you embarked on at a moment of what was sort of precipitous collapse in the midst of what looked on the outside like the perfect moment in your life. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think it all started with all the trauma from my mother's illness that I just sort of tucked away nice and safe in a very, very dark space within me that I never looked at and never opened and never examined and never dealt with. And at some point I decided I didn't want to pass that on to my children. I didn't want to live as such a dark, broken beast somehow. Like I, I really felt that I was just a big, black, sticky hole inside. And um, once I got deeper into the gardening... I tried to, at first, create something that was very, very controlled. Like I made all these little nicely um, rounded and spaced beds that all had a theme. Like there was the uh, rhododendron bed and <laughs> everything was was so nicely edged and, and separate. And, and I tried to, to make or create order within me through the creation of the garden. And I have clearly felt that the more I have dealt with the darkness within me and, and the, the mental health issues, um, the lighter I've become on the inside, the, the more relaxed I have become in, in my gardening. So there is a direct um, relationship between the two. And, and I feel more and more like at my next home, if there will be one, I, I want a house just in the middle of nature. No garden except a veggie patch and just in nature. I think I will reach that point one day when there's no need to control anymore. At least I hope so. <laughs> because then I think at that point I will be uh, truly free uh, on the inside. And talk about, if you can, 
the relationship between you and the garden that led you to some of this understanding because i th- i think from what i understand and what i see in your in not only your photography but your writing that there was a very tangible kind of wrestling of both you trying to control the garden and curate it and it kind of wrestling back with you and saying well you you can control me like this but you will learn this about that like it it was helping you work on yourself even while you were working on yourself in other ways as well like it was kind of a a partner support system teaching you these lessons yeah. about letting go of control. Am, am I right when I say that, Camilla? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And, um, and I think what I've realized now is that, like you say, yes, you, you can, to a large extent, you can control the garden. But I just sort of found that I would never be a happy gardener if I tried to exercise that control because because it's a never ending struggle um, if you want to stay 100% on top of all the quote unquote weeds and you want to have a lawn that looks only green and only grass and like all those ideas of how we exercise and like for centuries have exercised control over the natural world by creating these tight, nice gardens. And I just realized I wouldn't, I, I would be miserable because it would always be a losing battle, always. Plus, like because of my photography, I think, um, when I'm out walking with a dog or just alone and I have my camera with me and I see the, we have a lot of, of wild puppies here and in the summer in June, and when I see that red puppy swaying in the wind among just grasses, tall grasses, there's nothing, nothing in my garden I can create that is as beautiful as that sight. There's nothing that brings that same sensation within me, not just as a photographer, but as a person in this world, in this nature. There's nothing I can do that is as beautiful as that. Um, so, so right now where I am is balancing what I want with what nature wants. But like I said, I think eventually I will be ready to just throw everything into the wind and and let nature be there 100 percent but but this is this is an adventure that i want to do first it's not like i think i want to to move tomorrow and just live in a a yurt somewhere i definitely want to to sort of finish this experiment with myself and with the garden first. And I think back to your early description of your grandfather and how he was as a gardener when you were little versus when your father was little. And that willingness to say, I'm going to let the digitalis go where it wants. I'm going to let the poppies go where they want. And that evolution of letting go and letting the garden do what it wants and then also recognizing the joy that brings us. It's such a journey of finding and seeking happiness versus struggle because we don't want to garden as a battle. That's not why we're drawn to it. And yet that is so often how we're trained in it. 
letting go of our preconceptions is such, it, it takes so much work to unlearn things, doesn't it, Camilla? Yeah, it does. It really does. And I also think, well, at least for me, it, it seems natural to seek the struggle. Like I, for years, I felt most comfortable in pain. Yeah, as sick as it sounds. And I think actually a lot of people feel that way, perhaps because things feel so chaotic now mm. and have been for been feeling so for a few centuries. I don't know. But definitely I felt most comfortable in, in the darkness, in, in the confusion, in the hurt. And and the the learning to to see and feel for yourself how wonderful it is to live in the light to live in the joy to live in the in the in the freedom of of allowing things to be fluid and especially now i don't know if it's time to bring this up but of course the with the whole corona thing i think it's it's now more than ever important to be fluid and to be able to bend like the plants to to bend in, instead of breaking if you so rigidly hang on to how you thought things were supposed to be, um, then you're going to break. But if you can sort of um, sway in the wind like the grasses, then then you will you will stand again once the wind settles. And um, and I think uh, a lot of people could definitely benefit from allowing themselves to live more joyfully. Um, and not have such a set 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 of expectations um, to what the life or the garden is supposed to look like. And it sounds like I'm I'm done. I'm definitely not done. Like I have so many days where I just go on autopilot, and my autopilot will always point me back towards the shame, back towards the hurt, back towards the pain and the darkness. But but um but i see now that when i when i when i'm in charge then i i know how to seek the the pleasure and the joy uh, more than the pain now and it is i mean like our gardens it is an ongoing relationship and process it is not a final destination until it really is the final destination <laughs> yeah i want to ask you about the other cultural contexts we find ourselves in. I just thought in relation to the quote you read before from my website, uh, I think that relates very much to, to this as well, um, because chaos, as we are uh, in the midst of talking about now, and that sense of having something you can actually do if you have a piece of land you can tend to, instead of just think like all these thoughts, all these problems, all these um, pain that people are in all of, like there are a lot, there is enough pain to, to pick from. It's, it's so easy. It's all around us. And, and you can think yourself to death and into mental illness and frustration and everything. But it, but in actually the physical act of doing something, it, it releases so much of that. And, um, and I think it's so important that we're having this global conversation now about who is uh, allowed to to be in that space of the garden and and work on it and work the soil and 
and have that experience of growing their own food. There's so much power in to take back in in the growing of food, actually. Um, and and we, we all have the right to be there. In your description of uh, the the idea of learning from the plants how to bend instead of how to, you know, instead of always going to the default of a rigid expectation and therefore breaking, that in breaking, we we sadly don't just break ourselves. We break everything around us when when it happens. And as you have already indicated, you know, that's been the state of our cultural norm for hundreds and hundreds of years. And to see this moment, to be a gardener in this moment, and to be able to respond openly and compassionately and flexibly um, and proactively, as you just said, to saying, um, oh, yes, this, this is a moment we can, we can reclaim for others their visible, tangible, accessible right and privilege and joy of being here in the garden space. Um, because everybody deserves that beauty and that power and that possibility. Yeah, yeah indeed. And I, I have been, mm-hmm. yes, I have been following along with your series of handing your Instagram over to people who are actively, whether they are women, black women, or other women of color, or other women gardeners who are actively doing their internal work as well as their garden work to be more aware, to be anti-racist. And um, I really appreciate your leadership in vocally and visually in that space. Oh, thank you for that. It's been, um, yeah, it, it took me a long time to figure out how and why and when I wanted to do something with it because I definitely didn't want to to step um, to the wrong side somehow without knowing it for sure, especially because um, even though, of course, we have uh, uh, race uh, problems and, and racism problems here in Denmark as well, but but a few have commented on my Instagram as well that I shouldn't talk about this because I'm not American and there there's you can always offend someone and you can always um hurt someone uh, unintentionally um but but I'm trying to do it as as kindly as I can and hope that people will see that it comes from a place of love and kindness and wanting everyone to have what I am so incredibly lucky to have here, if that is what they want. Of course, not everyone right. wants a big garden, but, no, <laughs> um, no. but at least the, the option to, to grow food and provide for your family in that way is, is immensely empowering. And uh, I definitely want that for, for all women, especially. And not that I don't want it for men as well, but definitely my heart uh, lies with... Um, with the women. Um, yeah. And, um, this is sort of, uh, by the, the, the way, but h- how old are you now? <laughs> I am, oh, I'm 37. Yeah. And how <laughs> old was... are your children? 
they are 10 and 9. I I ask this because I figure, you know, if we even learn some of these lessons just a few years before our parents or grandparents did, if we get to this place of lighter and more open just a few years before they did, we maybe save our children just a few years of figuring out themselves and every little sort of half inch of progress we can make on those lines seems to me time well spent and pain well processed. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In yeah. in closing, you know, as you think about this this chaotic world we live in and the joy of the garden for you the the health care and beauty it offers you is there anything you would like to add camilla mm. just that i'm excited for the first time really i think in my life i am excited to see what's going to happen next. And so instead of thinking that I know what I want next, I'm for the first time very, very open to letting things unfold. And that goes very much so for uh, my career as a photographer. It goes very much so for the place we have here. Like what is this place supposed to be um, going forward? I have no idea. And I'm very... Um, well, I, I, obviously, I have an idea about it's supposed to be a place that is not just ours, but it has a purpose that is greater than it just being my garden somehow. That is very much a desire I have. But exactly how that is going to play out and unfold, I'm just sort of uh, ready to to see what will uh, reveal itself. Um, but I definitely hope that this place will be bigger than me somehow, um, eventually. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I wish we could talk for five more hours, but... (laughs) I know, I know, it's true. (laughs) Camilla Jervil is a photographer, a gardener, a mental health and habitat gardening advocate based on the Danish island of Aero. Her home farm, shared with her husband and children, is known as Sigrismina, meaning in memory of Sigrid, the gardener who first established a garden on this coastal bluff before Camilla's father and mother-in-law took on its care prior to Camilla and her family partnering with this land. Camilla's relationship with the land over the course of many of life's ups and downs has led to a deeper understanding of and measurement of health for Camilla, the land, and her family of humans and more than humans. Join us again next week when we head to the studio of another Garden Life creative, the inimitable Francis Palmer, whose pottery you may know and love, and whose new book, Life in the Studio, Inspiration and Lessons on Creativity, is out this month. And it will be a spark and a balm 
to the creative in you. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listener-supported through CultivatingPlace.com. To hear more about Camilla's early photography career, make sure to download this week's extended version podcast and to revel literally literally revel in Camilla's beautiful images of plants, gardens, life, and landscapes, make sure to check out the weekly podcast notes at cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast, which always has extended notes from me, and so you never miss an episode. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.